Well, good morning, Northland. It is good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We are concluding our series, The Backstory of Generosity. And next week, we get to start our Christmas series. Wow. It is hard to get into the Christmas spirit when you're still wearing T-shirts and shorts. I'll just be honest. Like, so, but I'm glad that it did turn off a little cooler this week. So that has been a, I would say a blessing, but Joni had told me when we moved from Illinois to here, I could not complain about the heat, so I will not complain about the heat, but I'm, I'm grateful for the weather this past week. Well, as, as we conclude our series, let me give kind of a recap of where we have been in the backstory of generosity. Basically, we began this series just with the question, are you a generous person? And throughout the series, we've really uh, kind of had this building block of, of generosity from week one all the way to here, what we'll look at this morning, uh, building out what it really means to be generous after the generosity of God. And, and we've been reciting John three sixteen because that's a great snapshot in the New Testament that describes God's generosity. And then we've kind of gotten into the DeLorean and we've gone back in time to Genesis 1, 2, and today 3, looking at the unfolding of God's creation and the demonstration of God's generosity in bringing about that creation. Like in week one, we learned that generosity is founded upon love. You and I will never be generous towards the people and things we do not love. Love is the foundation. And so whoever you love, whatever you love, you will be generous to them. And then in week two, we looked at generosity aims for flourishing. So you look at the people and things that you love and generosity aims to bring flourishing to their life. And, and so we unpacked what is, what is flourishing, not function, but flourishing. And so generosity aims to bring flourishing. And then last week, we looked at the fact that generosity leverages the, the tools of time, talents, and treasures to bring about flourishing for the people and things that we love. So now we have some tools at our disposal that actually will bring about the flourishing to the people and things that we love. So you look at your time, you look at your talents and you look at your treasures and you're leveraging them to bring about, not functionality, but flourishing. Now today we come to the last message in our series that I pray will just wrap this series up really nice and neat. And here's the main point that we'll flesh out this morning and I'm gonna say it in two ways to stay consistent throughout the series. The first statement is this, generosity serves as a counteractive measure in response to the greed of and in the world. So it's a counteractive measure. So basically we'll flesh out this morning what the measurement of generosity is. And that measurement now is a counteractive measure against the greed of and actually in the world. And then to be generous requires sacrificial giving to overcome the self-serving greed that unraveled God's very good creation. So what we'll see today in Genesis 3 is how God's very good flourishing creation unraveled because of greed and how generosity now requires sacrificial giving to actually overcome the greed in the world. Now, I'll give you an illustration, last Iron Man illustration, I promise, but it's just really fresh, and I'm two weeks from recovery, and it's awesome. I feel very lazy. My watch has told me that I'm detraining, which is very discouraging because I'm like, sucker, you've been telling me I've been peaking and performing, and now you're saying I'm detraining? What does that mean? I need to go out there and work out some more, but anyways, I'm just 
just, uh, you know, frustrated about the detraining part. But I remember when I was in the Ironman and I was, I was in the portion of the, the biking, 112 miles, and I remember there's this significant portion where you are going uphill, a slight incline with a 15 mile an hour headwind. So if I'm going to sustain my pace, guess what I'm going to have to do as I face that headwind and that slight incline? I'm going to have to increase my power. I'm going to increase my energy. Well, because we live in a in world, we have an internal and an external headwind. Well, the internal headwind is the greed inside our own heart, as we'll see this morning. And so if we are going to be generous, we have to overcome our proclivity to be greedy and stingy. And then we're going to have to overcome the external headwind of greed, because there's going to be times where we face people that are greedy and stingy and self-serving, but God still wants us to be generous towards them. And so greed is going to be internal and external. And if we are going to practice the measurement of God's generosity, well, we're going to have to have this self-sacrifice in us to actually demonstrate God's generosity. And so as we've been doing every single week in this series, we're going to stand. So will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? But we're going to look specifically at John 3, 16. That's the snapshot in the New Testament. Then we're going to rewind all the way back to Genesis 3. So on the count of three, let's read John 3, 16 together. One, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that that this morning you would be glorified and spirit, you would go to work shaping your people into a more generous image uh, where we would display God's glory in our generosity. And so we're, we are going to need your help, spirit, because we cannot do this on our own because of our fallen nature. And so I, I do pray that we would leave different than when we came in this morning, uh, more than when, when we engaged online, that you would, you would craft a, 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 our hearts into a, a, a more generous heart that embodies you in the world. And it's in your name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So John three sixteen, God gave up his son. And he just didn't give up in terms of just gifting the world the presence of his son, but his son became the sacrifice for the sin of the world. So, so when John tells us that he gave up his son, that means he offered his son as a sacrifice for the sin of mankind. And Jesus willingly gave up his life so that we might have life. If you want to know what the measurement of God's generosity is, read John 3, 16, Look at the cross. That is how God, think about it, that's how God measures generosity. And so this morning, I promise you, it's going to be hard hitting. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be convicting. I finished this message and I said, I'm not as, I'm not as generous as I actually think I am. And I can definitely grow in my generosity because as we look at the measurement of God's generosity, I think every single one of us, we should be convicted. And I, just on a side note, you, you know that I have not begged for money because many times when you think of a message on stewardship or generosity, the church is asking for our money. No, our church is not. 
Because here's, here's my, my, my heart. Listen to my heart, people. Is that I don't feel like I have to beg you for money. Because God's not begging you for money. God owns a thousand. He, th- he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need your money. But here's what I, here's what I truly believe. Those who follow Jesus, who are part of God's family, you don't have to beg about them giving. They want to give. And so that's where I listen. I'm not asking for money. I'm not, not preaching that who to give us the church your money. No. But what we'll look at is that when God has got a hold of your life, you don't just give him a piece of your life. You give him all your life. And that includes every sphere of your life, even the financial sphere. That's why we look at time, talents, and treasures, the, the holistic effort of generosity. So let's go back to Genesis 3, and we're going to look at the measurement of God's generosity found in Genesis 3 and see, does it even resemble John three sixteen? And we will actually conclude with, it most definitely does. So Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So now we're introduced to the serpent, Satan. He has found his way into the garden. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice what Satan does here. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Like, God is greedy, Eve. Come on. He's told you not to eat from any tree in the garden. Now, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, well, actually, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she doesn't even specify the tree, and then she adds to it, you must not touch it. God, God said nothing about touching it. So either Adam did a poor job in communicating to Eve what God actually said, or Eve did a poor job in listening. So women, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. God, I was, let's just say you're a good listener. We're poor communicators, man. Let's just I'll give it. All right. But, but I also want you to know how, how the serpent actually went against God's design of order. He created man first, then woman. And he had told Adam to guard and to keep the garden in Genesis 2. Those two terms, guard and keep, they are priestly language. And so Adam was supposed to be the priest of the garden, to manage the garden, to make sure nothing unclean entered into the garden. Well, here, the the serpent has found himself in the garden. Now he's at the tree that God told him not to eat from, talking to the woman, not the man. So he's attacking the order of God. And so Adam, he's just sitting by the wayside as this conversation unfolds. And in verse four, we read, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's what Satan does. Once again, he attacks the goodness and the generosity of God. He's saying that God is holding out on you, Eve. He's holding out on you and Adam because he doesn't want you to be like him. So if you just eat from this tree that he told you not to eat from, your eyes will be enlightened. You will be wise beyond your imagination. You will be like God. Verse six, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. I mean, just, I want you to think about this. Now, we read last week, we unpacked the portion where God had created all of these plants 
all of these trees that produce fruit and food. And we read that they were pleasing to the eye. But here, Eve is getting so fixated on the one tree God told them not to eat from. Think about how greedy she is. God has given them the plethora of all kinds of trees and plants. Yet she is focusing on this one. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took some and ate it. She took what wasn't hers to take. She was greedy. See, greed is robbing from God. It's stealing God's glory, what God had told them not to do. She does. And so therefore, she robs God of his glory. That is what sin is. Sin is robbing God of his glory. God says this, you say, I don't care, I'll do this. Thank you very much. That's what sin is. And this is what, it's what Eve does. And then, look at what she does. She turns around and gives some to her boneheaded husband who was with her. Like, good night. Bro, you ain't even, not even asking any questions. Like, Eve... I thought I told you. Did I not communicate? I, I mean, he just takes and he eats. He robs God of his glory. He was supposed to be the priest of the garden. Now he's taking and eating from the tree that God told him not to take from. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. Now what was so interesting is at the end of chapter 2, they, they were naked, but they felt no shame. They didn't know that they were naked. Why? Because God had clothed them with his glory. Now they've robbed God of his glory by doing that which he told them not to do. Now their eyes are open and they realize they are naked. And so therefore they feel the shame and guilt. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I have done bad. They bear both shame and guilt. And guess what they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they go to work trying to cover their own shame and nakedness. Let me tell you, since the fall of man, mankind has been trying, trying to cover their shame and nakedness, and they can't. Because look at verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do they do? They run to the Lord. Oh, look, well, look at our new clothes that we have, we have sewed together. No, they don't. <laughs> They, they hid from the Lord because they felt shame. They had this sense of guilt. And so when they sensed God's presence, they hid. And guess what sin does? Guess what greed does? It imprisons us. They went into hiding. God didn't put them into hiding. They went into hiding. That's why people who are far from God are in hiding, which is why the church is a search and rescue vehicle to go out and search for those who are in hiding because they are in shame. They're in their shame. They're, they, they're feeling guilty. They have the sense of guilt and they've tried all kinds of things. That's what religion is, by the way. Religion is trying to cover your shame and your guilt by doing all of these things. But here's, the, here's what we learn with Adam and Eve. You can sew all kinds of fig leaves together, but when God shows up, you are still in shame. Amen. Like, so religion doesn't help. It just wears you out. And then God's going to call out to the man, where are you? Where are you? I mean, just gracious words of a generous God, where are you? And then he's going to issue consequences for their sin. But, but look at verse 15. 
Here's what God says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I've said this before even here at Northland that Genesis 3.15 is what scholars refer to as the first gospel. It's the proto-euangelion. It's the prototype of the good news where God promises even now in their sin, in their darkness, in their shame, that he will reverse the curse of sin, that there will be an offspring that comes from the woman, that will come from Eve, and he will crush the head of the serpent, and he will defeat evil once and for all. That's good news. And then, verse 21, how's that going to happen is foreshadowed. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Once again, God goes to work clothing man. He clothed them in Genesis 2. They were naked, but they felt no shame. Now in Genesis 3, when they rob God of his glory, when they sin, they feel shame. Now God goes to work, and only God can cover us. And then the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he's going to kick them out of the garden. The garden was what scholars refer to as the Edenic sanctuary, the Edenic temple. So he's going to kick them out, but he is not going to leave them on their own. He will pursue humanity. Now, what we see in Genesis 3 are the counteractive measures of God's generosity in the face of greed. And we're going to learn. How can we learn from our Father in heaven of his counteractive measures in the face of greed and how we can be generous? And so what are the sacrificial ways in which God counteracts greed? And again, like I said just a few moments ago, we face, we face the internal headwind of greed because now we are marred by sin. But God has deposited, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has deposited his spirit in you to help you fight and overcome our proclivity of greed. And then we have the external headwind of greed, of being around other greedy people and stingy people, which God is calling us to be generous towards them. And so, so what we will look at this morning are the counteractive measures, the measurements of generosity. If you want to know, and this is why this is hard hitting, if you want to know, if I want to know, if we want to know whether or not we're being generous, these are the measurements. All right? So measurement number one. Generosity is measured by presence. Generosity is measured by presence. I want, you, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of God. And I know that that's kind of hard because we are finite. He's an infinite being. But you've spent six days creating this perfect world where you have deemed it very good. And this prized creation that you have made in your image has chosen to rob you of your glory. And you, and you recall what you did to the other being who had done that. And his name was Satan. And you kicked him out of your presence immediately. But now what we see God doing with humanity is he runs to be with them. Here's one of the things that I know about our human proclivity when we are around greedy people. We don't want to be around them too long. Especially messiness and drama. Like Thanksgiving is coming up, and I know some of you are just dreading it because you got to be at the Thanksgiving table with Aunt Jamama. You know, or I don't know, like, yeah. And, and so you're, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I got to be there, got to be present. Uh, and, and, and she's just all about herself. I, all I got to do is listen. And so, so you're already like, here's the thing. We tend to run the other way. 
God does not run away from the mess. He runs to the mess. And then here's another thing that I know about our proclivity in, in terms of time. We want to spend time doing what we want to do, don't we? Like, yes, yeah, so like, I, I, I want to do this because it's my time. Well, God, even in the face of rejection, he chose not to retreat, but to enter in. He chose presence over absence, even in the mess. So here's the principle. Don't, don't miss this, church. We must be willing to sacrifice where we want to be with where we need to be. Like, I know that you can be thinking about where you would want to be, but where do you need to be? See, see, God, he needed to be with his prized creation after their sin, and he meets them in their shame. He meets them in their guilt. He meets them in hiding. He chooses presence over absence. I know. Here's some examples. We might prefer being at the golf course when we need to be at home. We might prefer scrolling through Facebook rather than working on a project. And let me tell on myself, we might prefer watching our own show rather than letting the kids or your wife pick the show. Like my wife loves the Holiday Baking Championship. I do not want to watch the Holiday Baking Championship. And so I'm guilty. Like this, I'm serious. I'm telling on myself. One of the things that I've done when we moved into our house, we have a, 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 a family sitting room, and then we also have another room out in the open. And so I had asked Joni in this formal family room, can I put a TV out there? And at first she told me no. She probably needs to be rethinking that because that has been deemed my space. So if I don't want to watch the Holiday Baking Championship or any other kind of show that my children are watching, guess where I retreat to? I retreat to that formal little family sitting room where I have my TV and I sit. But here's the thing. I, I might prefer that but where I need to be is actually with my family. We might prefer staying in bed and lounging around rather than attending church. We might prefer just showing up to church rather than serving the church. We might prefer washing the dishes and avoiding the conversations at the Thanksgiving table rather than being at the conversations at the Thanksgiving table. You see, how we manage our presence and our whereabouts will, will determine whether or not we are generous or greedy. So how you manage your presence and your whereabouts will determine whether or not you're generous or you're greedy. That's measurement number one. Measurement number two. Generosity is measured by the trifecta. Everybody say trifecta. I just love that. The trifecta of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. The trifecta of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And so what you see here in Genesis 3 is that God was merciful. He withheld from Adam and Eve what they deserved. The thing about it, they deserved wrath. But God does not bring them wrath. He withholds it. He, he could have and he even should have, but he withholds wrath. There, and therefore, he extends grace, unmerited favor, giving to someone who doesn't deserve it. So rather than approaching them and delivering a blow of wrath, he delivers a gracious question. Adam, where are you? And he promises in verse 15 to reverse the curse through an offspring. He's going to do something that is gracious, that is an unmerited favor that he's going to pour out on mankind. And they don't deserve it. 
He promises redemption. And then forgiveness. He's going to absolve them of their wrongdoing. Now, although God does punish them by allowing them to face the consequences of their sin, he will ultimately bring them out of hiding and he will set them on a pathway of freedom as he unfolds his plan of redemption. But I don't want you to miss this. He brings them out of hiding first. He does not leave them in hiding. He brings them out. He extends this forgiveness to them. And we're going to see how he does that through the next measurement, but, but I don't want to get there just yet. I want to drill down on this measurement, particularly the measurement of forgiveness and how it practically works itself out in our life. You see, what we see in Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve committed an offense, a trespass against God. They broke God's law. God told them not to do this. They do it. As a result, they stand condemned. And they are now in debt because of their sin. But they're held captive by their offense. Again, that's why they're in hiding. They are imprisoned by their sin. Mankind, humanity, we are imprisoned by our sin. We are a slave to sin and what sin does. And sin takes us away from God. Uh, sin makes us scared of God. Sin wants us to be in hiding from God. So they're in, they're in captivity to their sin, a prisoner of their trespass. And there's no way for them to release themselves from that prison. Again, they tried with the sowing of the fig leaves, but they couldn't. That's why when God showed up, they hid. But the good news, everybody say good news. Now, we live in a culture, and I will say this constantly, we live in a culture that does not want good news. And the reason why they don't want good news is because if there's good news, it means it's what? Bad news. And so we live in a culture, we don't want bad news. We don't want to know the bad news. But the Bible teaches the bad news is that man, humanity, chose to rob God of his glory. And as a result of robbing God of his glory, that actually builds flourishing structures, we have now unraveled the good of God's creation, and we are finding ourselves failing and flailing and just mere functioning in some regard because we have chosen to rob God of the glory due his name. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that God does not leave us in our sin. He does not leave us in our shame. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you think you are, God loves you too much to leave you where you are. That is the good news that the Bible teaches, and it starts in Genesis 3. It's amazing. And so the good news is, is that God brought Adam and Eve out of their prison. He's going to forgive them and put them on a pathway to freedom and then one of these days, he's going to deal with sin once and for all through his son, Jesus Christ. So now we look back and he has dealt with sin once and for all. But God actively pursued Adam and Eve and he brought them out of hiding. That is the vertical dimension of forgiveness. God generously forgave Adam and Eve of their sin and freed them from the penalty of their sin. Now, what about the horizontal dimension? Well, now, now that we realize that God has generously been gracious to us through extending us forgiveness, now we in turn are generous towards others, extending forgiveness to them. 
And so forgiving others is opening up the prison doors for them so that they can walk in freedom. We're not imprisoning them for what they've done to us. Forgiving, listen to this, forgiving is not forgetting. The perfect example that I can give you is when Jesus shows up to doubting Thomas after his death and his resurrection. And what does he tell Thomas? To to put his hands in in where, where the nails were. You see, there's, there's the scars in heaven that will be on Jesus because of his death for us. And there will be scars there. But here's the thing. Although Jesus will remember why he went to the cross for our sin, he will remember once again, he doesn't hold us responsible for our sin. So forgiveness is not forgetting. It's just remembering, but not holding them accountable for what they've done to us. Now, Josh, how do you know that you've forgiven someone? That's a great question. I'll give you some examples. Well, here's how you know. You're not going to dart the other way when you run into them in Target. So you'd be moseying on down the little clothing aisle and then you see somebody who wronged you like three years ago and you dart towards the toy aisle. No, you haven't really forgiven them yet. You're not going to give them a piece of your mind the next time you meet with them. Why? Because you've released them. So so no longer do you have to give them a piece of your mind. You're not going to slander them or tear them down when talking about them to others. You're not going to communicate bad things on social media about how much you hate or despise them. Uh, So here's the thing. Uh, I haven't said this yet, but but if if you would classify yourself as a liberal or a Democrat, you're not going to slander Republicans. You're going to free them. And then Republicans, conservatives, you're not going to slam and despise and show hatred towards Democrats or progressives or liberals. You're going to forgive them. Now, you can state facts if you have the facts or whatnot, but you are not going to show hatred or despise them in public. You're going to release them from what you think that they have done wrong to you or even the country. You're not going to wish something bad on them. You're not going to wish that they would get fired or that they would get cancer. So that's how you determine whether or not you've truly forgiven someone. Now, let me just say this on a side note. I'm not suggesting here that when someone breaks the law that actually affects you, that they don't face the consequences of their sin in actually breaking the law. I'm suggesting here that we allow God to transform our hearts in a way where we can look at them the way God looks at them, and God looks at them as an object of their love where he has extended forgiveness through Jesus. And so therefore, we can hope for the good in their life. So when it comes to opening prison doors of forgiveness, there are two things we must constantly do. We must constantly confess ourselves. What do you mean by that, Josh? Well, we have to constantly remember that we were the the first offender to God. We offended God. We robbed from him. We stole from him, yet he extended forgiveness. And so we have to constantly confess that, yes, you, you are a good, generous, forgiving God that has extended forgiveness to me. And then you're going to have to constantly intercede and pray for the offender in your life. So those who have offended you, those who have committed a sin against you, those who have wronged you, those who have robbed you in some way, you're going to intercede for them. You're going to pray for God's blessing on their life. You're going to pray that God gets a hold of their heart. You're going to pray for God to do something good in their life. So it's constant confession and constant, constant intercession. 
Uh, Nelson Mandela is a, a, just an incredible example of forgiveness. Uh, Mandela served almost three decades in prison, and just a few years after his release, amid a, amid a heated and, and racial climate, he actually became president. And instead of emphasizing vengeance and retribution against his enemies and his political enemies, he emphasized reconciliation. Listen to some of these quotes by Mandela. We must strive to be moved by a generosity of spirit that will enable us to outgrow the hatred and conflicts of the past. Listen, if you have hatred and resentment towards someone, you will need God to do a work of a generous spirit in you to overcome that hatred and resentment and bitterness. And then you will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you will acts of retribution. This is Mandela. So no, no, no longer acts of retribution, acts of mercy. And then forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That's why it's such a powerful weapon. That's why we should be moved by the generosity of God. That he didn't strike us dead the way we should have been struck. But he extended forgiveness. We should be moved by that. That's why the church, we truly do love every single person, regardless, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they're doing, regardless of what background they come from. Because God met humanity in their darkest moment and extended forgiveness. And then for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. So he was freed from prison, and instead of putting those who had put him into prison into prison, he chose, he chose to enhance their freedom. Here's the principle. Sacrificial generosity involves paying someone else's bail to release them from the prison you put them in, and then inviting them to be part of your life. That's, that's sacrificial generosity. I mean, that's exactly what God did for Adam and Eve. That's what he does for us. He frees us from the prison that that he actually put us in because of shame and guilt of our sin. But he paid the bail. He brought us out of hiding and he invites us into his life. That's what sacrificial generosity looks like. Now, whether or not they want to become part of your life in some way, that's up to them. Like that, that, when it comes to salvation, God, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has forgiven the human race. But those who reject his invitation of becoming part of his life, they will spend eternity separated from him. But it won't be because he didn't extend forgiveness. It will be because they have not received the invitation. So whether or not they become part of your life, that, that's up to them. It's up to you to extend forgiveness. And in doing so, you actually free both yourself and them. Now listen to this, church. I told you this was hard-hitting and convicting. I'm challenged by this. If you're waiting on someone who has wronged you to ask you for forgiveness before you forgive them, or if you are waiting on someone to change their behavior before you fully forgive them, you're not being generous but greedy. You're basically saying you won't forgive until someone gives you what you want first. That is not generosity according to the standard and measurement of God. That is just transactional forgiveness, not transformational forgiveness. 
Transformational forgiveness is wrapped up in both mercy and grace. You're withholding from someone what they deserve, and through forgiveness, you are extending to them unmerited favor, something that they don't deserve. How many, listen to this, how many spouses are in prison because of the other spouse's inability to forgive? How many parents are in prison because of a child's, a teenager's, a grown adult's inability to forgive? How many bosses and supervisors and companies are in prison because of a worker's inability to forgive? How many people are underperforming today in their workplace because they are withholding performance due to an inability to forgive? How many churches are in prison because someone had a bad experience at the church and they have an inability to forgive? How many individuals fail to get involved in church and contribute to the mission of God because of their inability to forgive? Ultimately, the extension of forgiveness is built upon and founded upon agape love, unconditional love. That is the reason why Paul in Corinthians says that love, agape love, holds no records of wrong. Like, don't be, don't be bringing up your, your husband's dirty laundry from three months ago, three years ago, 30 years ago. Same thing with your wife. Don't be bringing up what she doesn't do. Love holds no records of wrong. Withholding mercy, grace, and forgiveness ultimately is detrimental to the structures and systems in which we inhabit. When we are not generous, church, listen to this statement. When we are not generous in mercy, grace, and forgiveness, we will see the structures of marriage and family, work and vocation, and church and community at best function and at worst fail. Do you know the two most powerful phrases in the human language are, I forgive you and I am sorry. See, if you cannot say that you are sorry, you do not have a generous spirit in you. And then if you cannot say you are forgiven, you do not have a generous spirit within you that is after the image and likeness of God. Both are built on generosity. And then third, everybody okay? All right, I'm just going to pause and take a sip of water for a second. It's hard-hitting stuff. But you, I, think you've, I think you know now, and I, I've come out of the gate in the last eight months, and I'm telling you right now that I'm, I won't tickle our ears. And I say our ears. I don't want my ears tickled. I, I want to know what, what do you want, Lord? And we want to strive as the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to reflect your glory. So we're, we're not going to be a church that tickles your ears and tells you what you want to hear so that you go home and you're ready to pet your poodle. We, we just want to say, here's what the Bible teaches. And if you want to be, if you want to be conformed more into the image of God, read the Bible and apply it to your life. Amen? All right, the third measurement is this. Generosity is measured by death. Generosity is measured by death. In verse 21, we read, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The garments of skin actually point to animal skin. Think, think about what God did. He took one of his treasures, one of his resources, one of his possessions, and he slaughtered it so that Adam and Eve might be adequately clothed. See, this is the 
first time we see substitutionary atonement, a life for a life. And what it is doing here in verse 21, it's foreshadowing the Old Testament sacrificial system. There was a life for a life. They would slaughter animals to cover the sin of Israel. And ultimately, it would foreshadow Jesus, who the Bible teaches was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God slaughtered his son, and his son gave himself up to be slaughtered so that we might live. And not just live, but actually have eternal life, to actually have a flourishing life. God gave up so that we might have life. That's the measurement of generosity. Here's the principle. If it doesn't cost you, it doesn't count as generosity. Like it might be a gift, it might be a charitable donation, but if it doesn't cost you something. And I'm I'm, I'm hesitant to give you examples here because again, I don't wanna prod you in any one way, but, but here's some examples. Like, it might cost you, instead of getting that expensive car, you, you get a less expensive car so that you can be more generous. Instead of, instead of going on an elaborate vacation every single year, you might just go on a, a minimal vacation. It, it might cost you through fostering or adopting, which is why we have spent an entire month showing you, showing us how we can get involved into the sanctity of life. Here's the key, don't miss this church. Here's the key to making sure that you'll be able to pay the cost of generosity. Your love for God and the people and things that he loves will need to surpass the love you have for yourself and what your treasures are able to provide for you. Like this is what it's going to take for us. And I say us, not just you, but me is that we will have to fall in love with God and the things that he loves and the people that he loves to the degree that that love surpasses the love that we have for ourselves and what our treasures can do for us. It's the only way we're gonna become generous like God. If you don't die to yourself, then the people and things God loves will not be able to flourish. I've said for years, and Joni and I, we have done premarital counseling for for many young adults. And one of the principles that we teach them, if you want to have a flourishing marriage, you both have to die to yourself. You know, when you have a marriage where two people don't want to die, you will have a marriage that eventually fails. If you have a marriage where just one spouse dies and the other doesn't, you might have a marriage that functions. But according to scripture, if you want to have a flourishing marriage, the two need to become one. And the only way for two to become one is if two people die to become one. Church, if we want to be a flourishing church, and I promise you this is what God wants for us, then every single person that would would proclaim Northland as home, you must die to yourself so that you can become incorporated into the body of Christ. The body of Christ is one. But if you're out on your own because hey, this is my time, this is my town, this is my treasures, not God's, then, then, then you will have a problem contributing to the flourishing of his church. All right, so I'm, I'm ending here, let me end. All right, so I'm gonna land this plane. I did tell you I was gonna give you the definition of generosity, didn't I? At the, very, at the very beginning, I said you gotta wait to the very end. So here it is, here's the definition, drum roll. All right, here it is, here's the definition. 
Generosity is the continuous sacrifice of giving up your time, talents, and treasures to bring flourishing to the people and things God loves. Now, you you might have seen a switch here because I've been saying the people and things that we love. But what we see in Genesis 3, because of sin, our love is distorted. The way we perceive things are distorted. So if we're going to be generous, we got to see people and things the way God sees them. And we read in John 3, God so loved the what? World. So now we're going to be looking at the scope of the world and everything in it, and we will be given our time, our talents, and our treasures continuously, sacrificially to bring about the flourishing to the people and things God loves. Think about the measurements. There's a quantitative measurement. It's sacrificial. It is ongoing. And then there is a qualitative measure. It is sacrificial. And that's generosity. That's how you define biblical generosity. And then let me give you a declaration of generosity. Here it is. You must receive generosity before you release generosity. You'll never be able, I'll never be able to release biblical generosity unless we have received God's generosity first. You cannot release what you have not received. And then the last statement is this, the invitation of generosity. Have you received God's generosity? Not not, not do you know about God's generosity, not not do you know about Jesus, have you received God's most generous and precious gift, salvation via, through his son? Have you received? If not, here's what we're going to have. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song called The Blessing, and we will have men and women up here ready to pray with you, ready to receive you, help you process what this, what this reception of this, of this kind of generosity, of God's generosity is all about. So if you have questions about faith, Jesus, you need prayer, they'll be up here ready to minister to you. So have you received generosity? And then second, here's the question. Have you released generosity? Have you released it? Could you imagine, church, what it would look like if in our marriages we released this kind of generosity? Families, can you imagine what it would look like if parents released this kind of generosity to their kids? And kids, what would it look like if you released this generosity to your parents? What what kind of family structures would we have? And then church, could you imagine what it would look like if every single one of us who were part of Northland released this kind of generosity. The 1,500 people that would call Northland home right now, we would do far more, God would do far more in and through us if we all released generosity than he would if there was 20,000 people who tipped God. This is the kind of generosity that blesses the heart of God because it actually emulates him and it reflects his glory to the world. Let's pray. God, may we be this generous. (laughs) May we, Spirit, we press hard into you, surrendering our lives so that you might be generous through us. I pray for those who are far from Jesus. Spirit, will you begin to draw them? If you're online, you can just put the word questions. And the person who's running our online chat, they'll reach out to you and and go through this process of what it truly means to receive God's generosity, to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
and then to begin living generously in light of what he's done for you. God, may we be a church that releases radical generosity. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us?